Good afternoon. I do want to say thank you for inviting me. And as I said this morning, I know you didn't have any say in it. Stu invited me, but thank you for staying uh, while, I'm, while I'm preaching. Uh, I noticed that you have these cards in, uh, in your programs tonight. Uh, there's a few different ones. So I've got one that uh, introduces us to Scott, and there's a few prayer points for Scott. You, some of you will have different people. Uh, we are absolutely aware that we can only function, our students will only grow in Christ uh, through the faithfulness of our God who responds to prayers. And so please take them home and at least before you throw it in the bin, could you pray for the person that, uh, that you've got? And uh, you might also want to get the uh, prayer diary from the college so you can keep praying for people. Well, I'm on page 864 of the Blue Bible and if you've got uh, the brown one, 1141. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do want to live in obedience to you and to honour you with everything that we have. And we thank you so much that you don't leave us in the dark about what this looks like. So thank you for these words that you have caused to be written that have just been read to us, that we can know how we should live. And thank you that you not only give us these words, but you give us your Holy Spirit who takes these words that are written here and that I speak and that plants them into our lives, and he is the one that energises us and enables us to do what is right. So we thank you for what he is doing, and we ask you that he might do it there in our lives tonight. Amen. 7th of July, 2005. Ring any bells for you? Yeah. Oh, okay. What about the rest of us then? I'll give you four names. Muhammad Khan, Shehad Tanweer, Jermaine Lindsay, and Hassam Hussein. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, you've got, you've got it too. You're, some of you remember the names, some of you remember the dates. They, that, they were the bombers in the London Underground and the Central London Bus, if you recall that. All four of them died in those bombings, along with 52 others from 18 different nationalities, and hundreds of people also had terrible injuries as well. Here they are on the, sl on the next slide. You can see uh, they were captured on CCTV, making their way to London on that day. Hussein, Lindsay, Khan and Tanweer. And I, as I heard it back then and as I was thinking about them this week, was wondering what would make a 30-year-old man with a wife and a young child? And what would make an eight, a 22-year-old and an 18-year-old with all of their lives to be lived in front of them? And a 19-year-old man who had a pregnant wife and a young son give up their lives and take the lives of other people? What could possibly be going on in their minds? Well, Muhammad Khan left a video explaining his reasons for why he did it. Let me read it to you. I and thousands like me are forsaking everything for what we believe. Our drive and motivation doesn't come from tangible commodities that this world has to offer. Our religion is obedience to the one true God and following the footsteps of the final prophet messenger. Our democratically elected governments continually perpetuate atrocities against my people all over the world and your support of them makes you directly responsible. 
just as I am directly responsible for protecting and avenging my Muslim brothers and sisters. Now, I certainly do not want to condone the actions of those men. But you see what consumes Khan at least. He's consumed by the God in whom he believes. And it showed up in the decisions he made as he lived and the decisions he made as he died. And I've got to say, it challenges me that you are so committed to the God in whom you believe that you are willing to surrender all of your future for that purpose. And I want to say, you are here today either because you love Jesus and want to serve him more or you're investigating whether or not you want to live for him. And let me say that the God who is there, the true and living God, the God of the Bible, is much, much better than the God for whom these men gave up their lives. Our God is much, much better. So if you've been coming to Point Church regularly, you've been working your way through 1 Peter. I noticed that in your preaching program. And so you'll know how much better Christian faith is than anything else. This little letter was written to a church who was suffering intense pain and trials, and it was, it was only going to get worse. We don't know exactly what the trials were, but at least to some extent they came from being Christians. And Peter says, in the midst of these trials that you're going to go through, look forward. Pick it up with me in chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power, until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Here is what the future is for every Christian person, an inheritance. No matter what you are going through now, there is something in the future that is incredibly good. It's an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. No matter what you look forward to in this life, no matter what you have now, is going to pass away. But this inheritance will not, never perish, never spoil, never fade. And then you think, but I'm on the 28th of October 2018, how do I know I'm going to make it safely through to the end? Verse 5, you who are guarded by God. That's protected. It's like the image is that of a fort that is around you and God is going to protect you that you might reach that inheritance. That's how good it is to be a Christian. You look forward and an inheritance never perish, never spoil, never fade. And he says, look back to, look back to Jesus and what he has done. Pick it up in chapter 1, verse 18. For you know that it wasn't with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but has been revealed in these last times for your sake. Redeemed, not, 
It's funny, perishable things like silver and gold, in this last week the stock markets, if you weren't aware of it, have been in absolute turmoil. And in the papers during the end of the week they were saying people are now fleeing to gold because the stock market is so uncertain but gold is lasting and it's permanent. And here Peter says, gold and silver, just perishable. Because what has bought you it is the precious blood of Jesus. It is the precious blood of God, the Son himself, who was set apart from even before the creation of the world, before you existed, before your parents existed, before your grandparents existed, God had appointed, before anything existed in this universe, God had appointed his Son who would die to make you his own. And there is nothing more precious in this world than that. So you look forward to the inheritance that is ours. You look back to how it was achieved by nothing less than the blood of Jesus. And he says also, look sideways. As you read the rest of chapter 1, you see that God's people are his chosen people, his holy people, who will have and are being made into people with a character like God, that we can live rightly in all and every one of our relationships. Oh, how our world wants that. Our world wants to have people who will live right and God is making his people like that. And so as Christian people, it is so much better than what these four who gave their lives up for have. Not the harsh hand of retribution. You have been hurting these people, so I'm going to kill you. Not the harsh hand of retribution, but the outstretched hands of God to save to save at cost to himself, at the cost of his own beloved son, and who guards his people safely home and makes us upright people. That is how much better the message is that we have. And what are we going to do with it? It is a great message, a great future, a great people that we are being made into. But we know how unacceptable Christian faith is in our world. You've only got to look at this week's newspapers or listen to the news. Any little thing that can be picked up against us is picked up and is used to bludgeon us. And even things that are not true, they spin as though they were true to condemn Christians. Christians are unacceptable. Even though all the Christians I know have virtues that are absolutely clear. Peter says, submit to authorities. The Christians I know do. Peter says, abstain from evil desires. The Christians I know strive to do so. Peter says, endure suffering. Don't retaliate. And the Christians I know try to do that. Peter says, Respect the roles that other people have. And I want to say that is our desire. And yet, people find Christian faith unacceptable. So I want to say we live in a world like Peter's world. We strive to live lives of integrity and honour where the response is we are challenged, ignored, mocked and at times persecuted. And make no mistake, this is occurring. It's occurring now and it's occurring even in our own city. This week the Anglican Church in Sydney had our synod and we spent considerable time on the first day of synod 
discussing a report that's taken hundreds, maybe thousands of hours to prepare about how we care and how we should care and what steps we can do and what money we can provide to care for the victims of domestic violence. But you will have seen, even this week, articles saying that we don't care or that we want to bury our heads in the sand. In fact, some people in our own synod were saying that unless you, without question, permit the remarriage of divorcees who are victims of domestic violence, then you are wicked, regardless of what other reasons there might be. Now, you would never do that with anybody. If somebody was a divorcee, you want to make sure they'd sorted things out first, wouldn't you, before you remarried them? But it's somehow seen as wicked if we do not automatically do that, even though we care and care deeply for victims of domestic violence. So... As we live in a world where the world is against us, as Peter writes to people in a world where Christian faith is unacceptable, what do you expect his advice would be to them and to us down through 2,000 years? What would you expect? What would you expect Peter to write? Go with the flow? Just go along with society? Don't think too much about it? Keep doing what you're doing, being Christian, but make sure you protect yourself. Maybe Peter would say, I want you to live like this, but I can fully understand why you might not do it because it's so painful. Or maybe Peter would say, enough is enough. Argue back when they mock you and defend your position. Or maybe he would say, bomb the underground to make your point. Well, Peter begins verse 8, our passage tonight, with the word finally. It's interesting he starts finally because it's less than halfway through his letter, um, but he's concluding this is how you should live. Verses 8 to 12. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For... Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I have to say that these five verses are really unexpected. I have seen the play and watched the movie Les Miserables four times at least. I don't know if any of you have. It's the story of the young students in France when the whole system was corrupt. The monarchy was just sucking all of the resources of the nation and there was just no way forward. And so the students decide that they're going to establish a revolution so that good and peace could prevail. And so in the movie and in the stage play, you've got these rousing songs and they set up a barricade. You know they are going to be defeated because you've got all the military power against them. They set up the barricade and as they're doing that, as the music's swelling, I want to join them at the barricades because that's what you would expect to do. It's the, if something is right, you've got to be committed to it. And now, in a world where Christian faith is unacceptable where we're laughed at and derided, hear again what Peter says. All of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil for evil or insult with insult. 
This has got to rewire our brains. Because it sounds like Peter is saying to us as we are attacked, give up, roll over and accept, do nothing. But these verses are the absolute opposite of that. This final advice is actually much harder than giving up your life in bombing trains in the London underground. Listen to the words more closely. Verse 8 is about relationships amongst Christians because like it or not, even though we are people who own the name of Jesus, we can rub each other up the wrong way, can't we? We cannot care for each other as we should and we can turn on ourselves, so listen. Verse 8, finally, all of you, all of you. This is not an optional extra. If you look back to what Jesus has done for you, if you look forward to what the future holds, if you look sideways at the work of God in you to make you like Jesus, this is not then for the super holy, the super Christians, those that we pay to lead us. It is for all of us. And so they are words for you and me. So all of you live in harmony with one another. That is, Share the same thoughts and attitudes. Think alike. Now our society, and because of our society does it, we think it as well, we see it as a virtue to think differently, to have an independent mind, to be different to other people. And Peter says here, think alike. He does not say, do not think, but he does say, think like Jesus thinks. Seek to be like him. In our own church gathering, it is so easy just to say, well, you, I believe this, you believe that, let's just get on with life. You've got different thoughts, you know what will happen. Over time, that causes divisions amongst us, doesn't it? No, Peter says here, live in harmony with, other, with each other, think alike. That is, what do you do when you've got disagreements with each other here at Point Church? You open the Bibles together. You listen to each other, you pray for each other and you strive to come to that common mind that God has given us his word for. Secondly, be sympathetic. Share grief and pain and joy and emotions and experiences. Enter into each other's needs and concern. This is a call from Peter to feel and share the pain of others. And it's costly. As one person is grieving, we all grieve. And I tell you what's even harder, that is rejoicing with those who rejoice because if somebody else is rejoicing, it is so easy for us to say, I wish I had that. How come I haven't got that? And Peter says, be sympathetic, that he share the joys of other people as well. Love as brothers. Look at the person next to you. Okay? What's your relationship to the person who's sitting beside you? Would you describe it as fellow attender, acquaintance, mate? Okay, I know some of you are spouses, so you would say, love of my life, or maybe something else. <laughs> but how would you describe it? Well, here Peter tells us how we describe our relationships with each other. Love as brothers. Each one of us 
if Jesus is our Lord, have been transported into the same family. We share the same figurative surname, that is Christian, and so love, <coughs> deep love over the long term, has to be what characterises us. <coughs> me. Be compassionate, says Peter. You're starting to get the idea in the picture, aren't you? That word compassion is the same sort of word as when you think about your inner organs, that is your heart, your bowels, your liver. Compassion is drawn from that word. It's our relationships aren't just to be on the surface, they're to be driven by the very centre of our being. Remember the compassion of Jesus as he is heading to Jerusalem that last time, that time before he is crucified. He sees Jerusalem, he says, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and he cries over it in compassion. And that compassion leads to not just his tear ducts, but his whole life being surrendered for that city that rejected him. Or the compassion in the story of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan is there being left for dead. And people of his own tribe, his own nation, when they see him, what do they do? They go onto the other side of the street and walk past. But the Samaritan, who had no reason to even engage with this person, goes over and fixes up his wounds and puts him on his donkey and takes him to the inn and gives money to the innkeeper so that this person's life might be preserved. That is what compassion is like. And humble. Not doing things for yourself, but for others and for their good. Because every other person is worthy of as, at least as much esteem as you have for yourself. See, this is a very big ask that Peter has got here. He's not just saying be nice, but he's saying from the deepest recesses of your being, work for the good of others at cost and at sweat to you. That's verse 8. That's hard enough, isn't it? That's much harder than going and bombing a train. And now in verse 9, this character that signals what it's like to live amongst ourselves is now turned on the very people who seek to hurt you. Verse 9. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. That is an overturning of a natural desire, an overturning of what society tells us we should do, an overturning of our natural defences. When somebody attacks you, you attack back, don't you? What Peter is saying is don't repay insult for insult. Don't repay evil for evil, but bless other people. Who would have guessed that this is the way you live your life as you look back at what Jesus has done, as you look forward to what the future holds, as you look sideways at what life is like. Why would you do this? Why would you live verse 8? Why would you live verse 9? It is so unnatural, so costly. By the way, that's one of the ways of measuring how you're going is how much it's costing you. Why would you do what Peter commands? And verse 9, the end of verse 9, gives us a very strange motivation. See it there at the end of verse 9? Don't return insult with insult, but with blessing, because this, to this you were called, so that you might inherit a blessing. The reason why you would do it is there is a reward 
to be received. Now I'm standing here tonight to tell you I'm nervous about saying this because the driving force, the driving power of the Christian faith is a response of thanks. That is, God has given, has already given and given not because we deserve it so much to us that the only reasonable thing to do is to respond in obedience. But the Bible does speak also of blessings for doing what is right. And so I must speak about it tonight, even though I'm nervous about doing it. So I want, to, want you to make sure, hear me. We are saved only by the precious blood of Jesus. But God has set the world up in an orderly way. And part of that orderly way is that our world operates with cause and effect. And we all understand cause and effect. I do that. That is the cause. And what is the effect? You all wake up and you all start looking at me. Everyone understands cause and effect. But cause and effect is not karma. Karma says that what I do now directly affects what I get in the next life. Do good now and you'll get a good, in, uh, a good outcome. I've got to say that is godless. But God has blessed you. That is the cause. And the effect of that blessing is that you will be a blessing to others. And as you live this sort of life, blessing other people, you'll be protected and guarded to receive the final blessing. I know this is a strange way of thinking, and I, I was trying to think of an example of, of how to explain it. So here's the best I can do. Next year, our swimmers will go through trials to be selected for the Australian Olympic team, swimming team. That's fair enough, isn't it? That's what's going to happen next year. Uh, and what will happen is, if they're selected, that will be an absolute gift. We, the Australian people, through our government instruments, will pay their airfares, will pay for their accommodation in Tokyo, and all those things, the ticker tape parade, if they get gold medals and all that sort of stuff, uh, that is all a gift. But what do you do if you've got that gift? You spend the next 12 months waking up early and going up and down with that black line beneath you, don't you? Because you have something, you do something, that is you exercise and strive and train so that you might get the reward at the end. That's the sort of thing that Peter is speaking about here. That's as good as I can do. And so then comes the quote from Psalm 32 in verses 10 to 12, which is not about karma. Here is the command to keep our tongues from evil and deceitful speech, to do good. But hear that verse 12, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears listen to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And that is why Peter says in verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? That is a truism. A truisms are things that are so often right. It's like Proverbs. They are things that see and distill the patterns of life and put them into little pithy uh, sayings like, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. That's a truism. But it's not always true, is it, that if you, rush in, if you don't rush in, you'll be okay because there's that other statement that says, he who hesitates is lost. Because it's usually right that fools rush in where angels fear to tread, but sometimes it's not right. 
And so what happens when it doesn't work that way? What happens when who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? You're going to put up your hand and say, yeah, I see where that happens. What happens in the times where this doesn't occur? Now, you've all gone through times of pain and suffering, and I'm not talking about that tonight. What I'm talking about tonight is the unfairness that comes from being a Christian, where you stand up for Jesus and people mock you and hurt you. All you've got to do is look across our borders into Indonesia and see what's happened there, haven't you? As the Christian governor of Jakarta, Ahok is put in prison for being a Christian, basically. And what does he do? He doesn't fight back. He says, OK, I will submit to the laws of this land because we live in a country which has order and fairness, probably more than any other country on earth, and I hope you do thank God for that. We have a system that rewards good and we have a legal system that mostly punishes evil. But what would happen if all of that was taken away? Well, there is a movie industry around. It's called dystopian movies, where in those movies, good is not rewarded but abused, where evil runs rampant without being quelled, where the unjust flourish where good and noble people are destroyed. And we see that in the movies, but it is not our experience here in Australia. It may be in Egypt, for example, and in other places, but not here in Australia. But you don't have to go very far to other countries and in the recent past to see that. You go to communist era, where lifelong imprisonment awaited those who were Christians or Nazi-occupied Holland, where concentration camps and death were the result of people who hid Jews so they wouldn't be killed, or in Uganda under Idi Amin, where in those seven-year reign of Idi Amin, young Christian boys were taken to be sex slaves for Amin and for his government, and then abused and killed and where the Archbishop of Uganda stood up to the butcher of Uganda and called him to repent. And he was personally punished by Idi Amin for several weeks and then finally put into a car as a dead man. It was, it was, they said he died in a car crash. What good, is it, what good is it then when Peter says, no one is going to harm you for doing good? Verse 14... But even if you should suffer for what's right, you are blessed. Don't fear what they fear and don't be frightened. How could you not fear? How do you keep doing what is right? How could you possibly believe what these people are going through is a blessing? Now, I talk about other countries because we haven't had to face it yet, but I suspect my children will face it. And we, even today, are in danger of compromising, so let's listen. What happens when things don't go the way you want, when people mock and ridicule you and Jesus? Verse 15. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. First thing we are to do when life is immoral and unfair... Set apart Christ as Lord. All of us should do it. 
We need to remind ourselves, to tell us ourselves, that there is no one else who rules because we, are, we know it only so well. You know, whoever the Prime Minister is this week, you know, we think they rule. Christ is the one who rules. We need to hear his voice in his word. He is all that matters. Having his praise is what we live for. That's what life is about, the praise of Jesus. He is watching from heaven and we need to set him apart as Lord. And secondly, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. That is all our responsibility. It's not the aggressive attack when somebody attacks us. In fact, we're told to do it with gentleness and respect. But it does call for a response and... It says, always be able to give a reason to count to everyone. We must not fear a position of a person. We must not fear their personalities. We must all be able to give a reason to count for the hope that we have. And so here's something that you might want to do every Sunday evening for the next few weeks. Why don't you ask other people here, can you tell me why you're a Christian? That'll be a benefit to two people. It will be a benefit to you as you speak that you'll be able to practice why it is that you're a Christian and it will encourage your heart. And the second benefit will be to the person who you speak to because they'll be encouraged in why you're a Christian. So next week I notice you've got the forum on here and so we'll spend all of our time inviting people to come to the forum. I want to say, those people that you're inviting, do you have an answer for the hope that you have? because that's something that we need to keep working on. And then verse 16, we're nearing the end. Keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ might be ashamed of their slander. A clear conscience. That is, not just that I am committed to my cause and I have sincerity in my cause, but it is a clear conscience. That was one of the failures of the bombers, wasn't it? There is a rightness to the clear conscience that you have. And it's a clear conscience, not just for our tribe. Our tribe, Christians in Sydney, Christians in the world, need to have as a group of people a clear conscience. Chapter 2, verse 10, Peter says, you are a holy people. We need to be people of a clear conscience, but each one of us individually needs to be people of a clear conscience. It's personal. It's you and me. People need to look at you and not let the mud stick. And why? Verse 17. It's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Everything that happens in our life is God's will. This is not from Peter just advice on how to win friends and influence people. Everything occurs under the loving hand of God. And while we may never know why this suffering, this aggression is occurring, it is always for the best. Let's ask God to make us like this. And imagine what would happen if he does do that. As people look at us in our love for each other, as people look at us in the way that we relate to a wicked world that is opposed to us, not returning insult for insult or evil for evil, but striving to bless our world. There is no basis to malign Christians. Maybe then they'll start trying to knock down our doors to come in. 
but it does not mean there'll be no opposition. But imagine lives that are passionately lived for Jesus, even in the midst of trial. Let me finish by telling you a story. A friend of mine told me of a friend of his who had moved to the Central Coast at the end of last year. They were a fairly poor family. Um, this, the husband was on the autism spectrum and they had one daughter who had a disability. And so they just scrimped enough money together to be able to buy this house up on the Central Coast and so it was in a very impoverished area of the Central Coast. And uh, they had been there for less than a week. The husband was at work and a knock came on the door of the house and there are a couple of kids from the street and they said, can we play in your backyard? And the wife said, I'm sorry, I don't think you can because it's just me and my daughter who are here and we're new to the area. And so she shut the door and she saw the kids walk down the few doors to the drug house down at the end of the street. And at that time, because she knew Jesus, she said, I am never going to do that again. So they kept getting knocks on the door and she said, yes, please come in. They let the kids play in their backyard and more and more kids came in. So now they run a youth club every day in the back of their house. In fact, there's only three in their family, but they've bought a 12-seater van to go and pick up the kids from roundabout and bring them to their place each afternoon. Why would you do that? You start by fearing. Do not fear what they fear, says Peter. Do not repay evil for evil. You don't think, oh no, what can I do to get out of this suburb? Look what I've got myself in for. No, it's an opportunity to bless the children of the suburb. If only God would make me like that. Let's pray that he'd make us all like that. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you that as we read these words, they might not just be a study in words, but that you would change our hearts and our inner being. Enable us to live in harmony, to be sympathetic, to love as brothers, to be compassionate and humble. And as we see others despise us and you because of the faith that we profess, enable us not to repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but to bless other people. I want to thank you for this example of this family that I just spoke about, the way that you have so invaded their hearts that they set aside Christ as Lord and for the impact that it has had on their world. Please, Heavenly Father, enable us to set you aside as Lord, you apart as Lord, and enable us to do what is right in the circumstances that we are in. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.